I have asked Kevin Brummett to speak this morning, and it occurred to me that while most of us, he needs no introduction, uh, but I've been reminded that uh, not only do we have people here today that are here for the first time, that we have people watching us all over the country, literally, <laughs> and uh, multiple states or people are watching us on Sunday mornings and sometimes later and when it's archived, and so they wouldn't know who this guy is. But this is Kevin Brummett. Everybody, everybody, this is Kevin. Kevin's a longtime member of Abundant Life Church and is a veterinarian by trade. If you have a sick animal, he's the guy. Uh, and uh, Karen, his wife, here's have Katie and Christian, their, their children, and uh, uh, Dan and Rowan, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, and too many grandchildren that I can name. And, uh, and, and Kevin's also one of our elders of here at Abundant Life Church, has been for many years. And, uh, so he's always, he always has a good word for, for us. And I have no doubt that he'll have a good one today. Let's welcome Kevin Brummett. Thank you. I was already a little bit nervous about following that worship and that prayer time and all of that. But, but yeah, now with the, hello, Utah. <laughs> uh, well, we'll see where, we'll see where this goes. All right. Well, um, I'm going to start off by just saying how much I, I too appreciate this church. I appreciate, um, the other elders and what they do and, just recently, and I've, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. If you didn't get a chance to watch Rob's two-part series on how we got the Bible, you, you should go back and do that. You, you here and you at home, it's just a few weeks back. Just find those two. First one's Old Testament. Second one's New Testament. And it's important. Um, and, and it explains how the books were settled upon, what, you know, how they were, how it was acknowledged that they were from God. And how they've been faithfully preserved down through the years, and that we can we can read them with confidence that that they have been preserved, and the message that's there is the message that was intended from the very beginning. So that's that's a, it's an important it's an important message. Also, week week to week, uh, this guy over here, Larry, brings us the word in a, in an exegetical exegetical style. Say that three times fast, uh, where he delves into it, he spends the week just digging it out, and he takes a short section and then works his way through a book or through a section for us. And we encounter it, we get to engage with it, you know, word for word, verse by verse, concept by concept. And that's the way to engage. That's an important work, and and I'm very grateful for, for Larry, for the way he does that. And and. It's important because when you do that, you don't get to pick and choose just the parts you want to talk about. You know, you're working through it and, and you have to deal with the hard parts as well as getting comfort and strength from the good parts. <laughs> it's all good parts, but it's parts we need, good in the, in the sense that we need it. And so I, I'm thankful for that. Um, and I'm going to take a little bit, <clears throat> I'm going to take a little bit of a different view, um, today. I'm going to look at, we're going to take a look at the Bible sort of from a 30,000 foot view. We're going to look down and, and just kind of see, see it as a whole. 
and see what we can see from up here, okay? Um, one of the things that um, one of the things that we don't believe about the Bible is that it was handwritten by God, or like he had an angel secretary, you know, taking it down for him or something like that, put on golden tablets and then dropped from heaven. That was the that was uh, the Book of Mormon. That's 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 not our scripture. Um, the the other way that we don't believe that the Bible came to us was that God picked one man out, dictated to him directly or through an angel what the scripture is, and then depended upon him to tell the rest of the world what his message was. That's Islam. That's the Quran. Okay? That's not the Bible. That's not the view we have. So, the Bible is a collection of writings all written by men, at least, I mean, human men, not angels, not purified, perfect saints, men, dirty, stinky men. <laughs> There's at least 35 to 40 of them, probably more, because we don't know how many people contributed to the Psalms, for instance, or how many people may have uh, took part in, in, in laying down the Chronicles, you know, those types of things. We, we don't know, but we know at least 35 to 40 men were involved. They were from varying backgrounds. They spoke different languages. They were from different geographic areas. It was all written over a period of about 1,500 years. Um, and, and the writers range from one who was raised in the palace of a pharaoh of Egypt to a, free slave, a freed slave to a shepherd to priests, to kings, to exiles, all kinds of backgrounds, you see. One, in fact, was uh, the cupbearer to the Persian king while in exile. They have, and when you get to the New Testament, you've got fishermen, you've got Pharisees, you've got a tax collector, and then you have two brothers of Jesus himself that all contributed to the Scripture, writing the Scripture. So if all these voices, and all the voices are different. You, you have some that are kind of pithy and, and plain-spoken, some are eloquent, some are poetic, some are philosophical, um, some are sarcastic and funny, and some are mysterious. And so if you've got all these voices, these different voices are contributing, and God didn't write it, why do we, what do we mean when we say that it is the Word of God? You know, in what way, and, and why do we believe this? You know, Christians are, are weird people. I mean, we just saw a demonstration of that a little while ago. You know, people walk down here and we all pray to somebody that we can't see and typically don't hear, at least not with our ears. Uh, and, and we do it as if we believe something good is going to come out of that or some change is going to be made by doing that. Well, Christians are also weird in that, you know, the ones that, that, practice the disciplines, they read this ancient text on a regular basis. And why do we do that? That's It's a strange thing. I mean, you don't find large groups of other people generally digging out ancient texts and reading those about old civilizations. How, how relevant can that be to us now? You know, So we do this, and, and we say, well, because it's the Word of God. Well, why do we, why do we think that? Well, 
let me um, let me show you something. Now, I'm sorry, I, I meant to go find something to project, but even from this, a pretty good size. Can y'all see that fairly well? Anyone make a guess who the painter is of this of this right here? Van Gogh. I heard it several places. Van Gogh. Now I know you can't read Vincent written across the bottom. And you, and it may be that you've actually seen this one before, because this is a fairly famous one. But even if I had been able to find an, a sort of a relatively obscure painting of Van Gogh and had shown it to you, probably the same few people that looked at it would have said, eh, that's probably a Van Gogh. Why? How would they know that? If they hadn't seen it before, how would they know it's a Van Gogh? The style, right. He has kind of a signature style. And yeah, it's been copied by some folks now, but, but it was original, you know, when he started doing it this way. He did these bold brush strokes. He piles the paint up like it doesn't cost anything, which it did. In fact, he was broke most of the time because he spent so much money on paint. And so, so artists, good ones, creative ones, develop their own style that's recognizable to people who study art. It's, it's the same way with music. Um, you have certain musicians that have their own style. If we found an, ancient, an old uh, piece of some, uh, some sheet music in an, in an old Gothic church in North Germany, nobody would seen it before. It just got found. It was hidden away for, for hundreds of years maybe. And you brought it out, and, and they said, okay, well, what is this? If somebody who could look at it, or especially if it was played, someone who knows classical music would recognize, well, that's from the late Baroque era. It comes from northern Germany. It combines the style of North German and South German Baroque of the time, and it introduces elements of Italian opera to it. That's probably Johann Sebastian Bach. I don't know that stuff. I just looked it up for the, for the sermon. But, <laughs> but someone, someone out there would be able to, somebody who studied classic music would be able to do that because there's a signature style that reveals the creator, you see. Books are the same way. Authors, authors have a signature style. Um, authors tend to have like favorite themes that they tend to repeat, you see. Um, the most ambitious authors <laughs> employ a variety of interesting characters and settings, and then they will set up a number of seemingly unrelated um, storylines. They'll all be interesting, but you don't see immediately. It's not obvious how you know what they have to do with each other, but they're all intriguing. And then the best authors go on to tie these disparate elements together for an against-all-odds Climax that is very engaging and satisfying. And it's often not until after that happens that you realize that the author had been giving you clues and dropping hints all along the way. And when you see the, when you, when you see the completion of it, all that comes to light for us. Well, there's a, well, here's an example. The Sixth Sense. Did y'all, those of you who saw the movie The Sixth Sense, I won't spoil it for the rest of you who haven't seen it because, well, spoiler, there is a surprise ending. But there's a surprise ending that does that. It kind of ties it all together for you. And it's sort of like, oh, I don't. And then you go back and you look at it and, oh, yeah, they were there. The hints were there all along, you know. That's that kind of thing. Well, in the Bible does that. I'm going to show you what I mean. And I'm actually going to start right at the very beginning 
because God starts doing it right at the very beginning. Okay? Stand with me, if you would, for the reading of the word. Uh, I think the first one is, is our scripture. I hope it comes up. Yay, there we go. All right. So I'm going to just read these few verses that start, and then we'll have plenty to talk about. All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. You may be seated. Now, I will be reading the rest of the chapter, actually, but I didn't want to make you stand for all that. I've been told in the past that the mind can only comprehend what the backside can endure, so uh, I don't want you getting too uh, uh, too fatigued from from the reading. But, uh, and we'll, like I said, we'll, we'll pick it up here in just a few minutes. But I want to I point out a few things just from these first four verses. Now, um, there's... Um, there is a philosophical idea um, that has been common in the Christian church really from the beginning and in, in Judaism even before that. Um, it's, called, uh, it's called creatio ex nihilo. Go ahead, the next slide, William. Creatio ex nihilo. You think, whoa, this has got to be, this has got to be fancy because it's got a Latin name, right? All right, so if we want to understand this very complex idea with a Latin name, we, we could go to one of these three people. We got Theophilus of Antioch. He was in the second century, I think. Uh, he was maybe the first in the Christian church to formally des- describe this idea. Or we could go to St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, Augustine of Hippo in the middle there. Uh, he expanded on that. Or we could go to Thomas Aquinas over here on the left, if you like. Uh, he he really fleshed it out. He has a real complete, uh, comprehensive treatise on it. Okay, but I prefer to go to a four-year-old. Okay, uh, William, see if that video will play for us. I'll set this up for you. Uh, uh, my my first granddaughter, Avonlea, when she was four, um, her father, who uh, pays no attention to the age of his children, he he likes to discuss these advanced concepts with them and uh, because he wants to see what they can what they can grasp and so here Avonlea has been introduced to this concept and she's so excited about it she wants to share it with her three-year-old brother Kirk okay I hope you can hear hear the sound if you can I'll I'll repeat it for you but just watch this just would can you say that I don't know. What are you trying to get him to say? What does that mean? Do you know? Creation. Creation? What is creation? Creation is everything. It's God making everything out of nothing by his powerful way. 
That about sums it up. I can, I can, I can, I think I can go with the four-year-old understanding of Kratio Exinielo. Creation of everything from nothing by God's powerful ways. All right, so, now the interesting thing about that, that, that concept is that, one interesting thing about it is that it's not explicitly stated in scripture. It's implied in scripture, but it's not explicit. It never says that God created out of nothing. It doesn't say that. This is, in the beginning, God created. Okay. And then later on in Hebrews, it kind of backs it up a little bit. Um, that's much later. <laughs> in Hebrews, I think it's 11.3, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. Okay. But... The idea is an important one because it, it, in the ancient world especially though, it, it separated out, um, it separated out Christianity and Judaism from the other major, major religions of the ancient world. See, the polytheistic religions all have the creator gods, the gods that are responsible for, you know, the earth and the mountains and the seas and all that kind of stuff. Whatever gods brought that about themselves came from something else. Uh, something they may have come from other gods that preceded them, or they may have come from a slain giant, for instance, from the uh, Norse mythology, or from a, a dead uh, dragon or serpent monster, you know. But they came from somewhere else. Um, and then the pantheistic religions, like Hinduism, basically equate the creation with the creator. You see, the the creator, there's a creator. They they do acknowledge there's 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 like one God, but but that everything is that God. That 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 God created everything out of the substance of Himself, you know, and that that the creation and the God are one and the same, part of the same thing. See, that's that's different. That's not that's not what Christianity and, and Judaism have taught historically. Um, all right, so. Excuse me first. Let me kind of catch up, catch up with myself here. Okay. Now, now I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. Now, but I'm going to read it. I'm going to ask you to kind of hear it like a four-year-old. Okay. I want I want you to kind of put yourself in the place of a young Hebrew four-year-old child who's starting to recognize some things in the world and wonder about things in the world, and you ask your dad, Abba, where did it all come from? And your dad, like Dan, has been waiting for you to ask a question like this, you see. And he has this story memorized. It's in his heart. And he tells it to his child so that they will understand too. And I'm going to try my best, my best, at reading this, I want you to listen, as you listen, not only try to just feel, feel the emotions that are there, try to experience the grandness of it, but I also want you to listen to like repeated patterns, word patterns, okay, and kind of feel the rhythm. Now, it's not quite as good in English as it would have been in Hebrew, because in Hebrew, there's, there's, there's like some rhyme and some meter and stuff that's going to be lost in translation, but still it's there. Uh, there's there's a lot to be felt, a lot to be heard. Okay, so 
you're all a bunch of four-year-olds sitting at the dinner table or around a cooking fire or whatever, and I'm going to tell you the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of all the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And then evening came, and then morning, the first day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating the water from the water. So God made this expanse, and he separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. And God God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and he called the gathering of the waters seas. And God, yeah, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants with fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Seed-bearing plants according to their kinds and trees bearing delicious fruit and seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the, the day from the night. They will serve as signs for festivals and for days and for years. And they will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to have dominion over the day and the lesser light to have dominion over the night, as well as the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to dominate the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created, so then God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. So God blessed them. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the, on the earth. And evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule 
the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock, all the earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you for all the wild, and for all the wildlife of the earth and for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from the work of creation. Did you feel it? Can you hear it? Did you pick out some patterns, some things that got repeated, some things that were emphasized there? Some of them are pretty obvious. Some are a little less so and become more obvious as you go and look at some of the other stories that follow. Um, perhaps um, the most obvious one is the repetitions of seven. We have seven days, seven days of creation. And the seventh day, everything is complete. It's a day of rest. And in fact, the number seven, the Hebrew is kind of an odd language, and I understand very little of it, to be honest. But they emphasize the vowels, and they sometimes leave out the consonants, you know. And so the vowels that are in a, in a word often, you'll have other words that are associated with it that will share the vowels, but they might change the consonants, you see. So they're related terms. The, num- the number seven, the Hebrew word for the number seven, sounds very similar to the, to the Hebrew word for fullness or completeness. Done. Okay? All right. Uh, there was another seven in there, although, again, we weren't numbering it as we went, but if you listened, you would have heard that God pronounced, it is good, seven times. And the seventh time, when things were complete, very good. See? And so seven, of course, goes on to, to have this really important place in Hebrew life. They ordered their weeks just like God did. Seven days in the week, you know, evening and morning, a day, you know. Um, and they took the seventh day and rested on it, just like God did. Because the way the story goes, God has taken man, made him in his own image, and set him in charge. He said, rule, have dominion. Manage this beautiful planet that I have made for you, this beautiful world that I have made for you that will grow delicious fruit and crops for you. Manage these livestock, manage these animals, and do it like I would do it. Work with me here. I'm asking for a partnership here. Now, we know that 
the story, the next two chapters, I won't read the, all of those, but you know the story. Uh, chapter 2 goes on to, to kind of describe the garden, how beautiful it is, how lush it is, how happy they must have been there. It's like God created these people and put them in the world that was perfect for them, you see, and said, here, I have made you like myself. I've made you creative. I've made you have uh, with the ability to think through problems and to work them out. I've made you uh, appreciate beauty. And, and, and so, so many, in so many ways, you are like me. Work with me in this. The only thing is that I'm asking that you work with me. And, and I'm going to ask you not to do this one thing. And that was the test of, you know, how much do they trust him? How much are they willing to work with him? And we know how that story goes. You know, that, that's, that's, that's chapter three. And so in three chapters, you have, uh, and I won't, I won't hash out the details there, but we know how the, how the serpent comes in. He introduces some doubt in their mind. And we see that Eve looks, she sees, she desires, she takes, he offers to Adam, he takes. And according to, uh, just according to God's word, from that point forward, they begin dying. The death begins. All right, so that's, 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 the, that's the early pattern. One, one, one pattern that is set in, this, in, these early, uh, in these early verses, too, is, um, is there's this separating. What God creates... He separates, and he orders, and he names, and he puts things in their places, and he sets boundaries, you see. And then those things that are now separated work together to make things good, to make things good. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's really, I'm just going to go back and look at it. Verse 2, the earth was formless and empty. Now, some say, uh, formless and void. Uh, I've heard somebody say that actually, if you spoke Hebrew, you would kind of hear that as topsy-turvy, chaos, making no sense, having no purpose. It's just, you know, it's just the waters, chaotic waters. And waters actually in the ancient world, in addition to throughout the Bible, represents chaos. In a way, the, the deep, the watery deep that represents chaos. And you can imagine if you're, you know, you're living up here on the land where it's safe and you go out there, it ain't so safe. There'll be sea monsters out there, you know, there, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous place. They saw, and that's the way they saw it. And so that's the way it's depicted here. Um, the, the Hebrew word, and this is again, this is one of those rhymes that we don't hear in, uh, for, for formless and void is tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu. And so God takes tohu vavohu and then he puts it in order, in a, in a harmonious order, in an order that works together to make good things, you see. Now, this goes, kind of goes back to the creatio ex nihilo thing. Why didn't God just say, world be, and it would just, you know, all be there? But that's not the way, that's not the way the story's told. It says he created, but it's, it's a mess. And then he sorts out the mess. It's almost like 
almost like he's giving us a hint as to what he's going to be doing from now on. Sorting out messes, you see. So he takes it, he orders it, he names it, he describes it, and he sets them to working together to make good things. He does the same thing with, I mean, you got the animals. They're separate. They're in their little separate realms. You got light and dark. They're separated and they work together. You got water and land separate. You got the skies, the heavens and the earth separate. You see, everything is separate. And the days, even time measured out separate days and named and numbered and serve certain purposes. You see, he even takes man and separates him into man and woman and defines them and declares that they're going to work together to multiply, fill the earth, rule it, have dominion, work with me in this project, you see. Well, what happens when we see that man fails is we start seeing that things start reverting back to tohu vavohu. Things start being poorly defined, you know, things don't work together well anymore. Uh, Adam and Eve, they're self-conscious. They, they, they don't even, even want to be exposed to each other anymore. They, they're trying to cover themselves up. And, and God comes in and in his mercy makes some clothes for them out of animal skins. So animals have to die. Death does come as a result. Immediate death does come as a result of their actions and their choices. But the death as animal death at the time. You know, that's how God helps them to see them through right now. All right. Another pattern that we see, in fact, uh, these kind of go together in a way. Another pattern that we see is is the symbolism of the water. Like I said, it kind of represents chaos, but it also separates, I mean, it, it, it represents um a change, like something big, a big change, like we're washing away all the old messed up stuff and we're going to set things right again. And so we see it right at the beginning. Everything's covered with water. God separates it and then he brings out, you know, the <laughs> where the water and the land come together, that's where you see the most lush, that's where you see most life all over the earth. You see, you see life like along riverbanks and along coastlines. It's where these two separate things come together and work together, the water, watering the land. It's, it's on the top of the earth. We don't live underground. We don't burrow around like worms. It's on top of the ground so that we have access to the sky, to the air. So you got water, air, the earth, all those things. They're separate things, but it's where they come together. That's where life happens. That's where life occurs. That's where plants grow. That's where, where animals thrive. Okay. Um, so water, like I said, represents chaos, and it also represents a new beginning. Like just like it did at the beginning, it re- in the very beginning, it represents a new beginning, and you see it several times. Um, you see it pretty pretty soon after this, actually, in the flood, because after the fall, man, the fall, the first that first fall, it was a big fall. I mean, man, they embraced their uh, fallenness. Uh, you've got the first generation brother kills brother out of jealousy. You just got a couple of generations later, you got Lamech who is so arrogant 
that he says, oh, God's going to, God's going to revenge Cain seven times. Well, I'll revenge 70 times seven times, you know, so he, 70 times. He's, 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 and he takes on multiple wives. That's the first time you start seeing, you know, that you're not satisfied with one, like the plan. Yeah, I have more. And it just goes down and down and down until we get to the point where humanity is so foul that it just needs to be washed clean again. And God picks out the guy of his choosing, Noah, of course, to test his faith, I guess. And he comes through. He builds that ark like he was told to. And by this demonstration of faith, he and his family were saved. He and his family alone were saved. And here comes the water, chaos, washes it all clean. And then God separates the water. And out of the separated water comes Noah and his family. Fresh new start. Doesn't last long. Things start going downhill again. We'll talk about Noah and what happened with him. But he, he makes some mistakes. His children make some mistakes. His children's children make some mistakes. And we get down to the next big story where, again, man has become arrogant. They, they're going to build a tower to God. And God says, nah, I'm going to, I'm going to mess up your plans here. So he gives them, gives them different languages. More confusion. More tohu vavohu, actually, in this case. But it's as a result of what men decide to do. Then you have, the story of Abraham, how God picks out one man. I mean, the world's kind of a mess. You've got empires building here and there. You've got really remarkable, because these people, you know, they have the image of God on them. They have the ability to do great things. And so they, they build these empires. They build Egypt. They build Samaria. They build uh, the, Bab- the Babylonian Empire. You have all these empires popping up. But God, out of this mess of folks, he chooses one man. He says, we're going to start over. That's Abraham. He says, I'm going to take him, and I'm going to start my plan over again. And he keeps making these promises about somebody who's going to come and set things right. And, and the anticipation, it even began back in after the fall. He said, he told after he pronounced his curses, after he said, well, what's going to happen because of, of Adam and Eve, what you've decided to do, you, Adam, you, Eve, and the serpent, he, he tells them all. He, um, wow, sorry. Um, he tells them that there's, there's going to be a seed of Eve. When he's talking to Eve, he says, you're going to have a seed that will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bite his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And there's the first promise of the man who's going to partner with God to set things right. And, 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 and from then on, all of Hebrew scripture is looking forward. When is that man going to come? When is that man going to come? And, of course, that's what they call the Messiah. All right. The floods. We had the flood uh, when uh, after Abraham's children, they, didn't do, they don't do so good either. I mean... The Bible is full of these characters, and they're, it's like, why don't you choose that guy, God? You know, he's just, he's just, he's just messed up as I am. Well, that's, that's why I chose him. That's why I chose him, so you could see yourself in these people. So we, 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 we make a mistake when we think that these 
people are put there um, as a prescription of how we are supposed to be. It's descriptive, not prescriptive, you know, the Bible. It's describing how people actually are. It's the story of mankind. It's the story of me. All right, so after Abraham's people, you know, they, a few generations, they have to go to Egypt because of the because of, uh, of, of, of uh, famine. And then they grow to be a large people in Egypt. And then God intervenes again, raises up Moses. And what does he do? He parts the water. They walk through the water. Because it's a mess. They're, they're losing their, they're losing what they've, they've been taught before. They've been living among the Egyptians way too long. And so God's going to take them out, start afresh by taking them through the water, separates the water. And then after 40 years in the, in the wilderness, they mess up out there a lot too. They, they just keep messing up, messing up, and messing up. But and otherwise, I mean, it wouldn't have taken but a few days to walk across that wilderness. It's not that big. They could have done it in a few weeks anyway, at the most. But they had to wander around, wandering around, making mistakes. God dealing with those things, saving them over and over and over again. I remember when Christian was a little boy. Some of you heard this story before. But at one point, it's like, of course, we're reading this night after night after night. It's like, it was just two nights ago, you know, God saved you from your stupidness. And here you are being stupid again. And Christian's like, why doesn't he just kill them all? (laughs) That's because God is merciful. He has a plan. He's going to work through all this tohu vavohu that we create for ourselves. And he's going to make it right someday. So he keeps working with them, keeps working with them, brings them through that water. And then when they finally do enter the promised land again, he separates the, the, the Jordan River. Uh, separate, they walk through the, through the water again. Fresh start in the new promised land. You see, it's a theme over and over again. And then in, in the uh, Jewish tradition... They did perform baptisms, but usually it was like a new start. You know, a a Jewish man or Hebrew man or an Israelite would realize, you know, I've been failing. I would like to start new. I want to start being kosher again. I want to start following the law. I want to start trying to be close to God. And then they will go and they'll have a a, a ceremonial baptism for the fresh start, new start. And this passing through the water... We see it again when we get to the New Testament. When Jesus starts his ministry, he goes and he passes through the water. He gets baptized. Does he need to be cleaned? No. But he's showing us this is the pattern. This is the way it's been. God washes clean, gives a new start, and then sees you through to the finish. And then, of course, eventually he passes through death itself and and comes out the other side of victor but all that is presaged is predicted by the baptism the difference with jesus of course is that once that he never he never he never sinned but he was human but he never sinned so god intended all along, for humans to work in partnership with him. But he had to have a human who's willing to work 
with him and not against him. One who is willing to declare that what God says is good is good and not decide for themselves what is good. Jesus is the only one who's ever done that. And so that was the ultimate. That was the sign. That was what all the signs were pointing toward. All through the Old Testament. There's so many other things that they don't have time to go into today, but that all just point to how Jesus fulfills the hope that is repeated over and over and over and over again through all the scripture stories. That's the fingerprint. That's the signature. That's God's theme that he likes, is how he's going to set things straight. He's going to use us. We just have to work with him. And he's going to do the hard lifting, the heavy lifting of fulfilling the law through his son Jesus, who is a human like us. And if we can put our faith in him, then we can become human like him, like that kind of human. That's the kind of human I want to be. All right. I, uh, some of you know that I teach a, a worldview class at um, Schaefer here. High school kids, mostly seniors, ready to kind of go out, start a new start. You know, we we try to use the class to help them to assimilate, basically, all that they've learned, you know, the, whatever they've learned from church, what have they learned from their families, what have they learned from school and just life in general, and try to to sort it out so that it makes some sense before they go out in the world on their own. You know, try to hang it all on a Christian, on a Christian worldview framework. That's what we try to do. And I had, um, I had a, a student once who asked me, why, why do I believe the Bible? Why do I believe that it's true? And, you know, I am a man of science. I mean, I'm, I'm a veterinarian. I've studied science a lot of years. I use science every day in my work. I use logic. I work through problems. That's a big part of what I do, who I am. And, and, and this person was a very rational, logical person. But I had to, I had to say to her, you know, it's not the logic and the, and the reasonableness that actually gripped it for me. That's important because the reasonableness, the logic of it, the rationality of it helps to answer these objections. It helps to get away the obstacles. Okay. But what I told her was, you know, what really makes me believe is just the story. The story is so good. You have to engage it, really, to, to understand. I mean, otherwise, it just, it just seems like a collection of odd tales. But if you engage it, listen for the patterns. Watch. Listen for the rhythms. You know, watch for those patterns. Then, then you'll see how God has been at work. You'll see how this collection of writings has his fingerprints all over it. The, 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 one of the songs that we sang, it was Your Presence, Lord. It's a cool song, and it's got this really heavy drum beat in the back. You know, it's the bass and the, the tom, you know, and it's got this repeating rhythm. And it's kind of the same thing in Scripture. You hear this, 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 this rhythm of, God, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you from yourself. 
You're going to make mistakes, but I'll put things right. And it's there. And all we, he asks us to do is embrace it. You know, that's, that is, that is good news, folks. That is good news. Well, I guess the two things I would, um, encourage you to do is, you know, read scripture whenever you can. I, I recommend making it a discipline. I, I, I'll have to confess that I've not always been as disciplined as this as I should be. But there's something that happens when we read these stories. It grips our heart and it makes us realize that we are these people and that what he did for them and what he was trying to do for them, those who would accept him, is what he is doing for us and will do for us if we will accept him. Um, one more, I think, uh, yeah, of course, many of you recognize this guy. I like to quote more than anybody else, probably C.S. Lewis. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Now, I have experienced that sometimes when I'm reading a Bible story or I'm reading a scripture, I'm engaging with it, I'm mulling over it. There comes a longing that's like you feel it. And it's something that you know can't be fully realized here in this world. It's not just in scripture, though. I mean, we see it in other places. Lewis talks about when he was a child, the first time he remembers experiencing it, his brother had, had made like a little toy garden in a metal like uh, cookie can and he'd put moss and little made little trees out of sticks and things and it was so beautiful and so captivating he wanted to be in it you know he he, he and he felt that longing like there there's 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 the shadow of a perfect world here and and I've read books that bring out this feeling of nobility in me at times. You know, the characters are just, they do something so impro- improbable and so noble and surprising. It's like, whoa, could I be like that? Maybe. And so when we see the best of people, then we, we get glimpses of what heaven is like, what the kingdom of God is like. And it is real. They're real things. We just don't get to experience them accepting glimpses here. But it's something worth pursuing. It's something worth putting our faith in. And that's why I believe the Bible. Thank you. That's all I got. Go in in peace. (laughs) 